Chapter 4 The Dark Night of the Soul After everyone left and the house grew quiet, Sasha and I went to the kitchen. She had had her own breakdown that night as well and was feeling pretty wiped out herself. Man, do I wish I had a glass of wine right now, I said. Seconds later, we heard Mark coming down the steps with a brown bag in his hand. Do you prefer red or white? He asked us. Oh, how wonderful it is to have a man who knows what a woman wants, I joked, and we laughed as we took our seats around the marble counter. I'll take red, I said. Beneath the joking, I was reeling from the events of the day, and I had a massive headache. We sat around the hummus, grapes, and chia chips, snacking mindlessly. I tried to sip the lovely liquid, but the truth was I wanted to take the edge off quickly. I had already felt enough for one day. For another hour, if not more, Sasha and I listened to Mark tell his story. We felt a kindred spirit with Mark, the only man in our group. Older and just as eager to shed the dead layers of skin from his life, he welcomed our insight and feedback as we listened deeply and with compassion to the reason for being there. As he spoke, we could feel his heaviness how weighed down he was with his own belief in his unworthiness, something we could both relate to. He confessed his need to always try to please and seek approval and be the right husband, father, boss, son. I lined up the organic green grapes on the cool marble counter, each representing these titles and burdens he was carrying. This one is the good enough father, this one the good enough husband, this one the good enough boss, the good enough son. What if there was just this one, the good enough Mark? For emphasis, I plopped a grape in my mouth. We all laughed and toasted to being enough. As we climbed the steps to our individual bedrooms, utterly exhausted, we were also supported by the power of kinship and love and compassion that turned strangers into friends in just hours. It had been a rough day for all of us, but at the end of the night, we had each other. Whatever journey we had just begun, we were going together, and that was enough to feel willing to do another day. Upstairs in my bedroom, cradled by the most wonderfully decadent comforter and pillows, I sank into the support and tried to make sense of what had happened and what was going on. I was completely wiped out and blown away by what transpired hours earlier. Nothing was looking the way I had thought it would. My mind could not reconcile what I came to get with what I was actually getting and how unbearably different the two were. Little did I know, my mind's perception of how things should look was only beginning to do its death dance. I laid in that foreign bed with my cracked open soul. Before Kyle had said goodbye to us hours earlier, he had been so compassionate and supportive and clear about how I needed to take care of myself and to be gentle with myself and to love myself. That much I knew. Whatever was happening, it was requiring a tremendous amount of self-love, and I was grateful that I had already gotten a bit of a handle on that almost nine years earlier. Self-love came as a byproduct of nearly calling it quits after five significant losses over the span of eight months from the fall of 2008 to the spring of 2009. First, I lost my father, 
followed by my lover of seven years, my business partner, my beloved dog, child, and then my job. I was as close to dead as a living person could be, completely disintegrated, nothing but dust. I walked around and put up a good enough front so that most people didn't notice the light had gone out inside of me. It was just a matter of time. The dark night of my soul, sparked by those losses, went on for 18 months. The entire time, I slept on the couch upstairs in my own house, unable to sleep in the bedroom where I had spent all those nights with the man I loved while our buddy laid curled up in a ball on the floor next to the bed. I remember the night a concerned friend came over and took all my sharp knives with her when she left. That was probably a good thing, I thought, as she drove away. I did get very close to taking my own life that winter in the womb of darkness that only Alaska can bring. The cold of the Arctic turns the tree branches into crystals and makes the air unbelievably still, frozen in time. The northern lights dancing across the sky above, offering the promise of something magical and alive, yet so far out of reach. Another friend had given me a full bottle of codeine before all this started happening, just passing it on casually to put inside my earthquake preparedness bag in case we had a big one and anyone needed that level of care. That winter, I did. The ground-crushing tremor of death and despair that had flattened the infrastructure of my life registered high on the Richter scale. And yet another night of numbness, I arrived at the scariest part of choosing to end my life, which was my brain presenting me with the facts that I couldn't argue with. I'm good, I thought. I've loved. I've had success. Life has been great. I'm good with this. I simply can't live with this pain any longer. This isn't life. I poured the Merlot into a tall water glass and scattered the pills on the table. Hopelessness is the last rung on life's ladder. Stepping down, there's nothing more. Nothing is emptier than feeling hopeless. As I stared at what lay before me, I glanced to my right and saw pictures of my family, my mom, my sisters, my nieces and nephews, in a split second, my heart previewed what a horrible thing this would be for them. I could feel my mind change itself. You can't do this. You can't do this to them. My Catholic guilt came out of nowhere and put up its dukes. I was so angry that I couldn't end my pain without causing theirs. I put the pills back in the orange plastic bottle, snapped on the white cap, and drank the rest of the wine. The grip of Alaska's long winter began to soften as the days passed and brought the sun back with them, minute by minute, day by day, my house filled with light. I decided then that if I was going to live, I would live my life, my real life, the life I wanted to live, came here to live, the creative life that I hoped was still inside me, the dream I hoped had not vanished with the darkness of winter. One seemingly random night, grace came upon me. I grabbed the pillow and blanket from the couch and went downstairs and opened the door to my quiet bedroom. I crawled into the cold bed. Spring was coming. In the days that followed, 
I would learn how to take care of myself for the first time in my life. I would ask myself, what do you need? And I would hear myself say, water, and I'd go get myself a glass. What do you need to do next? I need to take a shower, and I would go and do that. After my death and resurrection, I had to start all over again. I didn't quite feel like the phoenix at that point, but I learned how to love myself in a way I had never done before. There was no one else that could. That feeling of power, of rising, would come much later, but the seeds of rebirth were in those beginning days of emerging from the chrysalis. I learned that death can give many gifts, none of which I perceived as such at the time. Grief and sorrow were all-consuming, and simply making it through the day was all I could hope for. Eventually, I realized that one of the great gifts I received from my own death was learning how to make myself a priority, learning how to put myself first without feeling guilty about it, learning how to say no, learning how to not fill my time with meaningless stimuli so as not to feel, learning how to sit with myself and hold my tender heart while it broke open over and over and over again. I was laying a new foundation for my life because I had to. The fire of transformation had consumed everything. I felt like I was walking through smoldering ruins, finding corners of burnt pictures that gave me a window into what had been, but no longer was. I had to rebuild from just the materials that my heart and soul were giving me. It wasn't much, but at that point, it was all I had. As I came out of this vivid memory and returned to the moment, and the breakdown I'd had hours earlier on this first night of the Flow Group weekend, I realized at least I knew how to hold myself and love this part of me that had come out with such force. There was no doubt about it. I was there to uncover whatever blocks were within me, holding me back. However, I had no idea that this was what had been awaiting me. The chill of the memory made me tuck the comforter snugly under my chin as my mind raced around the details of that first exercise. Desires on the left page and denials on the right. I was trying to make sense of it and kept coming back to the moment in which I called the resistance to my heart's desires she. That's her part in it all, I thought. I dream she reasons every single time. Though I'd been able to win the mental wrestling matches every now and again, it was never without a fight, and the damage caused within myself was unmistakable and measurable. Little did I know, it would take all of that weekend and 100 more days for me to really understand this. I lifted my laptop off the nightstand, pulled it into bed, and started writing, hoping I could process some of what I was feeling so that I could go to sleep. Here is what I wrote. Ode to the right side of the page. You got triggered today in a big way, and you always do when I let my heart lead from the left side of the page. You're the external personification of all the doubt, concern, fear, and worry. You're the no, you can't, better not, it won't work, disbelief in the believer. You had no other choice but to rear your beautiful head when I began to feel to dare my best self to come out and play. You had no other choice but to bring all that you've got to the right side of the page, cause that's what you do 
When I dream, you scream. When I live, you give me every reason why I can't. You shame me, hold me back, pin me down with one lie after another. It was your job to come alive when I called forth my joy, when I unleashed my soul, when I launched my rockets of desire. You, like water, put out the fire. You brought facts and numbers and reasons. I tried to argue but ran out of seasons. You held court and made the case of why I couldn't, shouldn't, can't, won't. For a time, I let you win and gave you my power. And nothing weakens me more than when you bring up money or my many responsibilities as if my dreams weren't my responsibility or that they wouldn't bring me money as if they're separate or outside of my good, convincing me that you're my good. I can see now that I came to believe you as you deceived me, pretending to care. I don't blame you, though. Don't fault or judge you because now I can see the real me. And just because you don't like it can't see it, don't believe it, have reasons for it, I can now say, no more. I'm okay with you being the way you are because you're no longer the star. I know who I am. I'm the left side of the page where my heart says yes to the sage, the place where I'm most alive, where it feels most right. That's why you were holding on for dear life. But it's over. I see the truth. I made you. All these years causing so many tears cause all I've ever wanted to do is to live on the left side of the page. That's what puts me on the stage. And all these other parts of me that are exhausted by the game, confused by the shame, have come up to be loved because in the end, as in the beginning, there is just the one. And so the right became the left and the left became my heart and my heart became my yes and my yes became my everything. Through my writing, something was beginning to make sense. I finally fell asleep. Chapter 5. The Exorcism I awoke early on Saturday morning with more to say. And so though I didn't want you to be there yesterday, you were. Though I was embarrassed that it was happening again, it was. Though I laughed at the ridiculousness of what you had to say, you still had a grip on me, ripped me open until I could see there's not a she and a me. There's only me. There's only the one. You gave of yourself yesterday, a sacrifice of sorts, coming up to come out, giving it one last shout because you know that I know that love wins out. So I love you. I do. Then erase the line that has separated us, you plead, and plant a new seed. I see now this is mine to do. I take back my power this very hour. I'm picking you up and bringing you home to live happily ever after on the left side of the page. I closed my laptop and headed downstairs, excited to share with the others. We started Saturday morning with yoga outside on the patio in the California sun. As soon as I laid my body down upon the mat, I realized how important this piece was. Much had been dislodged last night, and I wanted to make sure it was moving out of my system. With each stretch and pose, I could feel an important integration of body, mind, and spirit. I could feel myself come more fully into my body, and it felt good 
and right and necessary. While I lay in Savasana, a profound awareness came over me, and there were those tears again. An overwhelming feeling of sadness came through me. I realized that this whole time I had never wanted to separate myself from my heart. I remembered the video I submitted to be considered for this retreat and how I said that all I wanted to do was to live from my heart all the time. What I had really been saying was that I wanted to come back to it, to the left side of the page. All of this was happening so I could get what I said I wanted. I orchestrated my own breakdown so as to have this breakthrough. Uniting my body, mind, and spirit through yoga was the final catalyst for this multi-process healing. Like it always does for me, yoga brought it home. After yoga, Kara had played a message for us that Kyle had recorded earlier. Another sweet, supportive, loving message with a specific call out to me to continue to be gentle with myself and a mention of her. I was looking forward to telling him about the healing that had just happened. We went into an hour-long meditation, and after 30 minutes or so, I was no longer a body, no longer in time, but mostly in space. I went somewhere, and it was the universe. I merged with that infinite love and eternal potentiality. I was suspended in my masquerade. At one point, I heard this intense sound. It was my own breath. It was such a distinct timbre, at once the sound of my first breath and last. It was that breath that brought me back into my body, back into time and space, back into the density of matter, though I was still feeling out of this world. Soon afterwards, I could hear the front door open, and Kyle's voice brought us back to opening our eyes. Everyone had gone deep in their meditation experience, and we all needed some time to ground back down to earth. Water and food, a shower for someone else, I had to pee. When we came back together, we were still finding our way. When Kyle asked us his most famous question, How are you feeling? I told the group about the writing and what I came to understand because of it and what had just happened on the yoga mat. That realization was still buzzing inside me and the beauty of it was still settling into my cells. I felt so proud of myself, both that I asked for help last night and held on for dear life while I got it. Feeling better, I had come through a very big piece of why I wanted to come to this event in the first place and was ready to get on with today's focus, which was mapping out the why of my business. I was ready to move on, dig deep into the reason my business existed and what I hoped to offer the world through it. But my inside work wasn't over. I was calling in my own exorcism. Much to my dismay, my anxiousness returned as we moved through the second day of the retreat. My mind was working overtime, whispering in one ear all the reasons why I came here, while shouting in the other all the things I was not getting. This led to a discussion around confusion, a topic where I was feeling very much like an expert. At one point, Kyle was explaining to me how my need for clarity was preventing me from loving my confusion, which he said would actually help me have clarity. I had no idea what the fuck he was talking about. Needless to say, my head was exploding again. I tried to follow him, but everything was upside down and it hurt. At the same time, 
A sliver of understanding was taking shape within the rubble of my thoughts and expectations. I couldn't really focus on it because the more he talked, the worse I felt as I realized this truth. I am confused. More tears flowed. How was this possible? How was it that the desire for clarity, the very thing I came here to get, experience, understand, and know, was actually blocking me from achieving clarity? I was in tremendous resistance to it all, and I was getting angry. To make matters worse, everyone else understood exactly what Kyle was saying. They were clearly seeing what he was trying to get me to see. I squirmed in the oversized leather chair and once again wanted out. Kyle moved to the edge of the couch he was sitting on and looked me in the eyes, wanting for me to understand what he saw. But in order to do so, to accept my own confusion, everything would have to collapse. I had worked way too hard to keep it all together. No way did I want to go through that. But the truth was, things were already collapsing. All the limiting constructs of my thinking, of how things had to be, of how I had to be, were falling atop themselves in that moment, like a building being demolished to make room for something new. My mind was doing everything it could think of to avoid implosion. I don't remember what made Kyle get up during our exchange and grab his phone, but he did so to document my process as I tried to come to grips with all that was going on. At the same time, I was appalled by the idea that he wanted to record me as I was losing my shit. Later, I wished the camera had been rolling the whole time so I could see what happened. It was difficult to remember that transformational moment because, very much like giving birth, it took all of who I was to be present for what was going on. The part of the brain that remembers things so it can comb through them later is not an active component when the contractions begin. But at that point in time, on the second day of our flow group retreat, I didn't like that Kyle was recording me. I was worried about how my hair looked, what I was wearing. Did I look fat? I could hear my mother's voice in my head saying, You don't have any mascara on. What are you doing? I demanded as Kyle started to walk towards me. I do radio. I don't do video. He laughed, continuing to capture my resistance, loving what he was getting. How do you feel? He asked, his grin widening. I feel like you're not listening to me, I said. The group erupted into laughter, Kyle included. He put his phone down and played back the recording. Then I was laughing as I watched myself put my hand up to his phone's camera and tell him, with all the attitude this Jersey girl could muster, I don't do video. Who knew I'd say that again and again as I looked into the camera of my own phone for 100 days? That Saturday night, Kyle took us all out for a healthy and delicious dinner, and we all had a great time. It was a huge relief to get out of the house and be with each other in a relaxed and social way. But when we returned after dinner, and Sasha and Mark and I gathered around the marble kitchen counter once again, I found myself wondering when this was all going to get better. I confessed my concern. I had been thinking all day about something Kyle said in that first flow group video I watched back in February. 
I remembered him saying that during these weekend retreats, he helps people identify the why and the how of their business. The why and the how of a person's business has become a huge focus for today's entrepreneurs. The why gets at the heart of what you do and is the starting point for the action plan, which is the how. I asked Mark and Sasha, hey, did you guys get your why today? Kyle said we were going to get our why, the reason for our vision, our dream, our business. But I don't think I did. Tomorrow, we're supposed to get our how. I don't know if I got my why today, but I'm getting my how tomorrow because I got to leave here with something. Still clinging to my expectations, I was fierce in my determination to get what I came to get from this weekend. Sasha tried to calm me down and soothe my fears, but I don't think it helped much. I had told my family and my friends in Alaska that I was coming home with answers, a plan, and a focus. I was going to have to give them an accounting of this weekend that I'd been so excited to attend. What was I going to say? What the fuck was I going to tell them?